Chapter One, Part Five of the Story of an African Farm by Oliver Schreiner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Sally McConnell. Sunday Services. Service Number One. The boy Waldo kissed the pages of his book and looked up. Far over the flat lay the copy, a mere speck. The sheep wandered quietly from bush to bush. The stillness of the early Sunday rested everywhere, and the air was fresh. He looked down at his book. On its page a black insect crept. He lifted it off with his finger. Then he leaned on his elbow, watching its quivering antenna and strange movements, smiling. Even you, he whispered, shall not die. Even you he loves. Even you he will fold in his arms when he takes everything and makes it perfect and happy. When the thing had gone, he smoothed the leaves of his Bible somewhat caressingly. The leaves of that book had dropped blood for him once. They had taken the brightness out of his childhood. From between them had sprung the visions that had clung about him and made night horrible. Adder-like thoughts had lifted their heads, had shot forked tongues at him asking mockingly strange, trivial questions that he could not answer. Miserable child! Why did the women in Mark see only one angel and the women in Luke two? Could a story be told in opposite ways and both be true? Could it? Could it? Then again, is there nothing always right and nothing always wrong? Could Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, put her hand to the nail and her right hand to the workman's hammer? And could the Spirit of the Lord chant paeans over, loud paeans, high paeans, set in the book of the Lord, and no voice cry out it was a mean and dastardly sin to lie, and kill the trusting in their sleep? Could the friend of God marry his own sister, and he beloved, and the man who does it every day goes to hell, to hell? Was there nothing always right or always wrong? Those leaves had dropped blood for him once. They had made his heart heavy and cold. They had robbed his childhood of his gladness. Now his fingers moved over them caressingly. My father God knows. My father knows, he said. We cannot understand. He knows. After a while he whispered, smiling, I heard your voice this morning when my eyes were not yet open. I felt you near me, my father. Why do you love me so? His face was illuminated. In the last four months the old question has gone from me. I know you are good. I know you love everything. I know. I know. I know. I could not have borne it any more. Not any more. He laughed softly. And all the while I was so miserable you were looking at me and loving me, and I never knew it. But I know it now. I feel it said the boy, and he laughed low. Mm, I feel it, he laughed. After a while he began partly to sing, partly to chant the disconnected verses of hymns, those which spoke his gladness many times over. The sheep with their senseless eyes turned to look at him as he sang. At last he lapsed into quiet. Then, as the boy lay there staring at the bush and sand, he saw a vision. He had crossed over the river of death, and walked on the other bank in the Lord's land of Beulah. His feet sank into the dark grass, and he walked alone. 
Then, far over the fields, he saw a figure coming across the dark green grass. At first he thought it must be one of the angels, but as it came nearer he began to feel what it was. And it came closer, closer to him. And then the voice said, Come. And he knew surely who it was. He ran to the dear feet and touched them with his hands. Yes, he held them fast. He lay down beside them. When he looked up, the face was over him, and the glorious eyes were loving him. And they, too, were there, alone together. He laughed with a deep laugh, then started up like one suddenly awakened from sleep. Oh, God, he cried, I cannot wait! I cannot wait! I want to die! I want to see him! I want to touch him! Let me die! He folded his hands, trembling. How can I wait for so long, for long, long years, perhaps? I want to die to see him. I will die any death. Oh, let me come. Weeping, he bowed himself and quivered from head to foot. After a long while, he lifted his head. Yes, I will wait. I will wait. But not long. Do not let it be very long, Jesus King. I want you. Oh, I want you. Soon. Soon. He sat still, staring across the plain with his tearful eyes. Service number two. In the front room of the farmhouse sat Tant Sunny in her elbow chair. In her hand was her great brass-clasped hymn-book. Round her neck was a clean white handkerchief. Under her feet was a wooden stove. There, too, sat Em and Lindel, in clean pinafores and new shoes. There, too, was the spruce hottentot, in a starched white cuppy, and her husband on the other side of the door, with his wool oiled and very much combed out, and staring at his new leather boots. The Kaffir servants were not there, because Tant Sunny held they were descended from apes, and needed no salvation. But the rest were gathered for the Sunday service, and waited the officiator. Meanwhile, Bonaparte and the German approached arm in arm. Bonaparte resplendent in the black cloth clothes, a spotless shirt and a spotless collar, the German in the old salt and pepper, casting shy glances of admiration at his companion. At the front door, Bonaparte removed his hat with much dignity, raised his shirt collar, and entered. To the centre table he walked, put his hat solemnly down by the big Bible, and bowed his head over it in silent prayer. The Boer woman looked at the Hottentot, and the Hottentot looked at the Boer woman. There was one thing on earth for which Tant Sunny had a profound reverence which exercised a subduing influence over her, which made her for the time a better woman. That thing was new, shining, black cloth. It made her think of the predicant. It made her think of the elders who sat in the top pew of the church on Sundays with the hair so nicely oiled, so holy and respectable with their little swallow-tailed coats. It made her think of heaven where everything was so holy and respectable and nobody wore tan cord, and the littlest angel had a black tail-coat. She wished she hadn't called him a thief and a Roman Catholic. She hoped the German hadn't told him. She wondered where those clothes were when he came in rags to her door. There was no doubt he was a very respectable man, a gentleman. The German began to read a hymn. At the end of each line Bonaparte groaned, and twice at the end of every verse. The poor woman had often heard of persons groaning during prayers, 
to add a certain poignancy and finish to them. Old Jan van der Linde, her mother's brother, always did it after he was converted, and she would have looked upon it as no especial sign of grace in any one. But to groan at him time, she was startled. She wondered if he remembered that she shook her fist in his face. This was a man of God. They knelt down to pray. The Boer woman weighed two hundred and fifty pounds and could not kneel. She sat in her chair and peeped between her crossed fingers at the stranger's back. She could not understand what he said, but he was in earnest. He shook the chair by the back rail till it made quite a little dust on the mud floor. When they rose from their knees, Bonaparte solemnly seated himself in the chair and opened the Bible. He blew his nose, pulled up his shirt collar, smoothed the leaves, stroked down his capacious waistcoat, blew his nose again, looked solemnly round the room, then began. All liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Having read this portion of scripture, Bonaparte paused impressively and looked all around the room. I shall not, my dear friends, he said, long detain you. Much of our precious time has already fled blissfully from us in the voice of thanksgiving and the tongue of praise. A few, a very few words, are all I shall address to you, and may they be as a rod of iron dividing the bones from the marrow, and the marrow from the bones. In the first place, what is a liar? The question was put so pointedly, and followed by a pause so profound, that even the Hottentot man left off looking at his boots and opened his eyes, though he understood not a word. I repeat, said Bonaparte, what is a liar? The sensation was intense. The attention of the audience was riveted. Have you, any of you, ever seen a liar, my dear friends? There was a still longer pause. I hope not. I truly hope not. But I will tell you what a liar is. I knew a liar once, a little boy who lived in Cape Town, in Short Market Street. His mother and I sat together one day, discoursing about our souls. Here, Samson, said his mother. Go and buy sixpence of me, boss, from the Malay round the corner. When he came back, she said, How much have you got? Five, he said. He was afraid if he said six and a half, she'd ask for some. And my friends, that was a lie. The half of a me boss stuck in his throat, and he died, and was buried. And where did the soul of that little liar go to, my friends? It went to the lake of fire and brimstone. This brings me to the second point of my discourse. What is a lake of fire and brimstone? I will tell you, my friends, said Bonaparte condescendingly. The imagination, unaided, cannot conceive it. But by the help of the Lord, I will put it before your mind's eye. I was travelling in Italy once on a time. I came to a city called Rome, a vast city, and near it is a mountain which spits forth fire. Its name is Etna. Now, there was a man in that city of Rome who had not the fear of God before his eyes, and he loved a woman. The woman died, and he walked up that mountain spitting fire, and when he got to the top he threw himself in at the hole that is there. The next day I went up. I was not afraid. The Lord preserves his servants. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou fall into a volcano. It was a dark night when I got there. 
but in the fear of the Lord I walked to the edge of the yawning abyss and looked in. That sight, that sight, my friends, is impressed upon my most indelible memory. I looked down into the lurid depths upon an incandescent lake, a melted fire, a seething sea. The billows rolled from side to side, and on their fiery crests tossed the white skeleton of the suicide. The heat had burnt the flesh off the bones. They lay as a light cork upon the melted fiery waves. One skeleton hand was raised upwards, the finger pointing to heaven, the other with outstretched finger pointing downwards, as though it would say, I go below, but you, Bonaparte, may soar above. I gazed. I stood entranced. At that instant there was a crack in the lurid lake. It swelled expanded, and the skeleton of the suicide disappeared, to be seen no more by mortal eye. Here again Bonaparte rested, and then continued. The lake of melted stone rose in the crater. It swelled higher and higher at the side. It streamed forth at the top. I had presence of mind. Near me was a rock. I stood upon it. The fiery torrent was vomited out and streamed on either side of me and through that long and terrible night I stood there alone upon that rock, the glowing, fiery lava on every hand, a monument of the long-suffering and tender providence of the Lord, who spared me that I might this day testify in your ears of Him. Now, my dear friends, let us deduce the lessons that are to be learnt from this narrative. Firstly, let us never commit suicide. That man is a fool, my friends, that man is insane, my friends, who would leave this earth, my friends. Here are joys innumerable, such as it hath not entered into the heart of a man to understand, my friends. Here are clothes, my friends. Here are beds, my friends. Here is delicious food, my friends. Our precious bodies were given to us to love, to cherish. Oh, let us do so. Oh, let us never hurt them, but care for them and love them, my friends. Everyone was impressed, and Bonaparte proceeded. Secondly, let us not love too much. If that young man had not loved that young woman, he would not have jumped into Mount Etna. The good men of old never did so. Was Jeremiah ever in love, or Ezekiel, or Hosea, or even any of the minor prophets? No. Then why should we be? Thousands are rolling in that lake at this moment who would say, It was love that brought us here. Oh, let us think always of our own souls first. A charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, a never-dying soul to save, and fit it for the sky. Oh, beloved friends, remember the little boy and the meboss. Remember the young girl and the young man. Remember the lake, the fire and the brimstone. Remember the suicide skeleton on the pitchy billows of Mount Etna. Remember the voice of warning that has this day sounded in your ears. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. May the Lord add his blessing. Here the Bible closed with a tremendous thud. Tant Sunny loosened the white handkerchief about her neck and wiped her eyes, and the coloured girl, seeing her do so, sniffled. They did not understand the discourse, which made it the more affecting. 
there hung over it that inscrutable charm which hovers forever for the human intellect over the incomprehensible and shadowy when the last hymn was sung the german conducted the officiator to tansani who graciously extended her hand and offered coffee and seat on the sofa leaving him there the german hurried away to see how the little plum pudding he had left at home was advancing and tansani remarked that it was a hot day Bonaparte gathered her meaning as she fanned herself with the end of her apron. He bowed low in acquiescence. A long silence followed. Tant Sunny spoke again. Bonaparte gave her no ear. His eye was fixed on a small miniature on the opposite wall, which represented Tant Sunny as she had appeared on the day before her confirmation fifteen years before, attired in green muslin. Suddenly he started to his feet walked up to the picture, and took his stand before it. Long and wistfully he gazed into its features. It was easy to see that he was deeply moved. With a sudden movement, as though no longer able to restrain himself, he seized the picture, loosened it from its nail, and held it close to his eyes. At length, turning to the Boer woman, he said in a voice of deep emotion, "'You will, I trust, dear madam,' excuse this exhibition of my feelings but this this little picture recalls to me my first and best beloved my dear departed wife who is now a saint in heaven tansani could not understand but the hottentot maid who had taken her seat on the floor beside her mistress translated the english into dutch as far as she was able ah my first beloved he added looking tenderly down at the picture oh the beloved the beautiful lineaments my angel wife this is surely a sister of yours madame he added fixing his eyes on tant sunny the dutch woman blushed shook her head and pointed to herself carefully intently bonaparte looked from the picture in his hand to tant sunny's features and from the features back to the picture then slowly a light broke over his countenance he looked up, it became a smile, he looked back at the miniature, his whole countenance was effulgent. Ha! Ah, yes, I see it now, he cried, turning his delighted gaze onto the poor woman. Eyes, mouth, nose, chin, the very expression, he cried. How is it possible I did not notice it before? Take another cup of coffee, said Tansani. put some sugar in. Bonaparte hung the picture tenderly up, and was turning to take the cup from her hand when the German appeared, to say that the pudding was ready and the meat on the table. "'He's a God-fearing man, and one who knows how to behave himself,' said the Boer woman as he went out at the door. "'If he is ugly, did not the Lord make him? And are we to laugh at the Lord's handiwork? It is better to be ugly and good than pretty and bad, though of course it's nice when one is both.' said Tunny, looking complacently at the picture on the wall. In the afternoon the German and Bonaparte sat before the door of the cabin. Both smoked in complete silence, Bonaparte with a book in his hands and his eyes half closed, the German puffing vigorously and glancing up now and again at the serene blue sky overhead. Supposing you... you in fact made the remark to me, burst forth the German suddenly, that you were looking for a situation... Bonaparte opened his mouth wide and sent a stream of smoke through his lips. "'Now supposing,' said the German, 
merely supposing, of course, that someone, someone in fact should make an offer to you, say, to become schoolmaster on their farm and teach two little children, two little girls perhaps, and would give you forty pounds a year, would you accept it? Just supposing, of course. Well, my dear friend, said Bonaparte, that would depend on circumstances. Money is no consideration with me. For my wife I have made provision for the next year. My health is broken. Could I meet a place where a gentleman would be treated as a gentleman, I would accept it, however small the remuneration. With me, said Bonaparte, money is no consideration. Well, said the German, when he had taken a whiff or two from his pipe, I think I shall go up and see Tansani a little. I go up often on Sunday afternoon to have a general conversation, to see her, you know, nothing, nothing particular, you know. The old man put his book into his pocket, and walked up to the farmhouse with a peculiarly knowing and delighted expression of countenance. He doesn't suspect what I'm going to do, soliloquized the German. Hasn't the least idea. A nice surprise for him. The man whom he had left at his doorway winked at the retreating figure with a wink that was not to be described. End of chapter 1, part 5